Greetings and welcome to Let's Talk About Books, baby, where we will be talking with your favorite LGBTQ authors. This is Anita Kelly, and my guest today is the awesome author of gay literature, Greg Heron. Hi, Greg. Hey, Anita. How are you? Good. Good. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah. How are things down in, where are you? In um, New Orleans. New Orleans, yeah. How We're in day four of a heat advisory. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I thought uh, you guys were, were having a lot of rain there for a while. Oh, it, it rains all the time here. Um, <laughs> our last, we haven't had rain in the, it rains pretty much every other day or every day. We just sometimes get these really bad storms where we get a lot of rain in a short period of time and bef- the streets flood before the pumps catch up. Yeah. And the last time it just happened to make the national news. <laughs> but that uh, happens here like once or twice a year. Oh, uh, okay. All right. We just caught wind of it this time. <laughs> yeah. We usually, it was really strange because it happened, like I said, you know, it's just something that happens here all the time and we're just kind of used to it and we live around it and yeah. deal with it. Yeah. And I was getting emails and text messages and Facebook messages and tweets making sure I was okay. And I'm like, I'm fine. What's wrong? (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, sing out on. And it it wasn't that big of a deal. But, I mean, it is a big deal. I mean, it's not, but it's not, it's something you get used to. You always know that you need to move your car to higher ground and you need to pay attention to the floodwaters and you got to be careful when you're driving through standing water you never know where a pothole is right exactly and don't put your garbage out on garbage night if it's raining like that gosh yeah we lot we we were able to track our garbage cans down it was a garbage day (laughs) oh really (laughs) they floated away we were able to track them down though (laughs) (laughs) so have you always lived in new orleans um no i'm originally from alabama but we i moved around a lot Growing up and as an adult, I can't, but I've been in New Orleans longer than I've been anywhere else. Uh, We've been here since 1996, so 23 or 24 years. Wow, that's, 20, fa- yeah, yeah. that's fantastic. <laughs> you must like it. Yeah, we like it here a lot. It's, it's home. I never felt, I never felt home anywhere else, but I do feel it here and I felt it. I felt New Orleans was home from the very beginning and I don't. Can't imagine living anywhere else now. Floods or no floods. Is um, New Orleans the setting of any of your books? Um, yes. I write about New Orleans a lot. I've written two private eye series with gay male private eyes that are both set in New Orleans. Um, the Chance McLeod series and the Scotty Bradley series. The Chance books are more of a dark, hard-boiled series, I see them that way and the Scotty books are more light and fun and anything can happen and usually does and those but I New Orleans is my inspiration I write about New Orleans a lot is um the Chance McLeod books how many are there in that series I and I wrote seven books in that series the last one came out several years ago I don't remember how long ago it was time just kind of is like mercury in my fingers, through my fingers. Yeah. But when I wrote the seventh book, I was pretty much had pretty much decided I wasn't going to do the series anymore. 
it had run its course in my mind. Okay. And then about a month or so ago, I came up with another idea for one, and I wrote a chapter of it, and so there'll probably be another one. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah. I'm sure the Chance McLeod fans will be happy about that. I think so. We'll see. Uh, it just... It, it won't be a new, it'll be set in Louisiana, but it's not really a New Orleans book, which is a departure for the Chance series. I'd always wanted to move, have Chance do stuff outside of New Orleans. Publisher never really was that interested in non-New Orleans Chance adventures. Okay. So, but I think at this point it doesn't really matter anymore. There was a period of time where it did matter, but it doesn't really matter anymore. I don't think. I think it's more about the character now more than the city, but I could be wrong. We'll uh, find out. Okay. <laughs> so are you staying with the same publisher? Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. I've been with I've been with Bold Strokes now since I think two thousand and eight for eleven years now. I'm very happy there. Okay. They do a really good job with my books. I'm really happy there. Good. They weren't my they weren't my original publisher, but that's where I wound up. Okay. And I'm really happy there. They do a really good job with me. They do, they're really great to work with. And how did you end up with Bold Strokes? Uh, well, originally, um, I was originally with Allison Books, which um, went out of business, I believe, in 2008 or 2009. I don't remember when. And I was also with Kensington. And Kensington, the Scotty series started at Kensington, and the Chance series started at Allison. Kensington dropped the Scotty series after the third book. Um, it was because it was a light, funny series. The last book in that series I had written before Hurricane Katrina, I had finished two weeks before the storm came. Yeah. And so my that book was the last pre-Katrina book published after Hurricane Katrina. Okay. And it was re I really couldn't see how to write a funny, light book, madcap kind of adventure in New Orleans after Hurricane in the time after Hurricane Katrina. But I had wanted to write a fourth book because I had kind of left his personal story hanging at the end of the third one. And Kensington didn't want it because they felt it had been too long since the previous book had come out. Okay that too much time had passed. It had been it had been like two or three years since the book had come out. And then it would take me another year to write it and then another year to get through the production process at Kensington. So by the time the book would have come out, it would have been five years since the previous one had come out. And so they felt that the audience wasn't there anymore. Huh. And shortly after they made that decision, I was at Saints and Sinners, literary festival here in New Orleans and Radcliffe was there uh -huh. and she had already taken one an anthology I had done for another publisher that had gone out of business without the book coming out and we just happened to be on a panel together and we were chatting with um, the moderator and I just asked her flat out if she wanted the next Scotty book and she said yes and so we signed a Signed a contract, and I wrote the book, and Bold Strokes doesn't take as long as Kensington. Uh -huh. Kensington is more on the traditional 
New York's scale of publishing, okay. where you turn in a book and it takes a year after that. It doesn't come out for a year after you turn it in. Okay. So they would, so literally, they would. You'd sign a contract. The book wouldn't be due for another year, and then the book, book wouldn't come out for another year. And Bold Strokes was able to get the book out within a year. I wrote it in like three or four months, and they were able to get it out very quickly. And I was very happy. And the sales. The audience was still there. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Why wouldn't they be? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so that was uh, Kensington's loss and Bold Strokes' big win. Yeah, big win. And then when Allison went out of business, they picked both. Red offered to take the Chance series on as well. So I just moved it to from Allison to Bold Strokes, and that's where I've been ever since. Awesome. And I've not regretted it at all. I'm really happy there. Sounds they've like a fairy a, tale. They've done a very good job with my books. They've, they've, made, they've made me feel very welcome there. I wasn't sure how that was going to work because it was mostly a women's press when I started publishing with them. Yeah, I, I remember it back then. They had only a couple men, I think. Yeah, and so it's still primarily a women's press, and there's still, but there's still a few guys they, they're publishing, and they're doing some really good stuff with the guys. Mm -hmm. I hope people are buying them because they're very, they're doing really good stuff. Yeah. And the women's stuff, of course, is really good and has a huge audience. There's a huge audience for the women's books. So that's where their money is. <laughs> Do you think that, that more lesbians are reading like lesbic <laughs> than gay men are reading gay fiction? I think so. I think so. Um, most of the, most of the fiction that's being published with gay characters today isn't written for gay men. Oh. And it's written, it's written primarily, mostly by straight women for straight, for straight female audience. Okay. There are, there are some gay men who write it as well, mm -hmm. and who write the romance novels and so forth, but their, their audience isn't gay men, and there's not, I've read some of it, it's not for me. Mm -hmm. um, I don't have a problem with it. I think everyone can write whatever they want to write, and if there's an audience for it, they should. Mm -hmm. But it's just not for me. There's not there's not a lot of gay male presses anymore like there used to be, and there's still some gay men who are getting published. John Copenhaver published with Pegasus a really good mystery last year called Dodging and Burning, which was his debut novel. And it had gay characters and gay themes, and it was set in the post-World War II area in rural Virginia, which was really, really quite good. But I think that for some reason, um, gay men, and this is complete speculation, I have no basis for this. Mm -hmm. I think gay men have a tendency to read gay male fiction and gay male authors when they're young gays, uh -huh. when, when they're coming out or when they just come out or in the first five or six years after they've come out, lesbian, lesbian readers are much more loyal. Okay. They'll, they'll find an author they like and they will read everything she writes Yeah. and, and they will stick with her to the bitter end. And I think that it's one of the primary differences for the lesbian between the lesbian reader audience and the male reader, the gay male reader audience. 
I kind of wish the gay men were as loyal as the lesbians were, <laughs> are, to be honest with gay you. Gay men are fickle. Come on. They are. They are. <laughs> shiny objects. Shiny objects. Okay. There long. you go. Do you think, though, that might be just indicative of, like, the, the general population? Um, I don't know. It just seems to me that there are more... Um, women who read in general than men who read in general. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think the it's anywhere from 65 to 70% of the book buying audience is women. Really? Yeah. That's and huge. It, it is huge. And they read much more voraciously than men do. Men, the vast majority of readers, I read this in Publishers Weekly, they did a study. So there is some, there is, I'm not just making this up. I read it somewhere. Okay. I don't know where. <laughs> but I did read it. And the vast majority of male readers will read one or two books a year. Okay. The average female reader will read five to ten books a year. That, that doesn't surprise me. It really doesn't. Um, it, it, it really isn't surprising when you think about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When you sit down and think about it, it actually does make a lot more sense. Women drive the book business. And the biggest, the biggest, most successful genre is romance. Yeah. And is a much higher percentage of the romance readers are women than men. And they support an entire industry. Romance, the romance, the romance genre drives the publishing industry. Hmm. People don't want to admit that. But it's true. And, you know, every almost every publisher will, has, they either have their romance line or they have what they call chick lit, which is not quite traditionally what you would consider a romance novel, but it's really a romance novel. That doesn't surprise <laughs> Bridget Jones' me. Diary was a romance novel. Okay, they, yeah. yeah. They call it chick lit, but it was a romance novel. Yeah, it was. You're right. Yep. And so they may not call them romances, but all the publishers are publishing them yeah. because that's where the money is. I believe that. I actually, I know a heterosexual woman who writes gay uh, romance um, and uses a male pen name. Yes, there's... Quite a bit of that, or the ambiguous pen name. Okay, yeah. Like the initials. They do the initials, or they use a name that can be either gender. Just Pat. Yeah. <laughs> Alex, you know. Yep. Kelly. Yep. And, you know, like I said, I don't, I, there are some issues with that that make me uncomfortable, but on the other hand, they're not hurting anyone. Yeah, I, I think as long as they're not hurting anyone, um, you know, and if, if someone's... And if it opens up yeah. somebody's mind to being more tolerant or friendly to the, to our community, more power to them. Right. We, could, we need all the allies we can possibly get. Yeah, that's true. I think, I think there's a lot of... I think there's a lot of... I think the women, the, the straight women... And the bisexual women who write the gay male romances get a lot of flack from gay men that they don't necessarily deserve to get. Yeah. I don't think that anyone should be telling 
anyone what they can and can't write about or mm -hmm. who they can write about. But at the same time, you also have a responsibility when you're writing about a marginalized community to get it right. Absolutely. And, and um, you know, I, I think there is maybe a little problem with authenticity. Um, yeah. And, but, you know, but I don't know how, I don't know what the answer to that is. You yeah. know, mm -hmm. it's, you hear about, you know, sensitivity readers and, on the one hand, I s applaud the, that kind of effort put into making sure that there's accuracy and authenticity in the story and in the characters. Mm -hmm. But at the mm -hmm. same time, there's there's also an element to me of it of, well, this is my black friend, so I'm not racist. I'm not yeah, homophobic. Right. <laughs> this is my gay friend who read my book, and yeah. they don't think I'm homophobic, and they don't think this book is problematic. You see what I'm saying? There's always yes. going to there's always going to be someone who's going to say it's wrong, and there's always going to be someone who's going to say it's right. Yeah, yeah. And as long as they're not doing actual harm, yes, I don't see the harm in it. Yeah, I, I think you know? that is the the key thing. There is do no harm, right? Yeah, and I think that. I mean, I'm, I'm struggling right now because the book I'm working on right now, I'm trying to be very careful with it because it's dealing with some, some fraught issues. Um, and actually, I'm right. Oh, God, why do I do this to myself? <laughs> um, I am <laughs> writing a book that is set in rural Alabama that is going to that is a ghost story that also confronts issues of race, class, and homophobia. Wow! The deep rural South, and which is quite ambitious. And sometimes I think, what were you thinking, trying to write this book? But I'm also not trying to write it from a perspective of the white savior. Okay. Which you know is very. Which can be, which is problematic. Yeah. Um, but it's more. It's very. It's. It's hard to talk about it because I also don't want to give anything away in case it does get published. But hopefully, anybody listening to this won't remember when the book. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, it's very very difficult because it's set in a part of Alabama where I'm from. Okay. And. It's forcing me to confront a lot of things about where I'm from and the people okay. I come from, mm -hmm. and that makes it is making it a lot harder having to face a lot of harsh realities that I chose, you know, not to deal with most yeah. of my life. Oh, that's just my grandmother. That's the way she talks. That's how she is. That's the generations she's from. That's just who she's it's like, no, that's actually a problem. No, ma no matter what age you are. Sounds like a therapy session, Greg. And so it's, it's, it's been very eye opening for me to write this book. Um, I don't know. I know that it needs a lot more work. I have to finish, I have two more chapters to fit, three more chapters to the first draft is finished and it needs a lot, a lot, a lot of work. So what, what kind of possessed you to do this? Because this is, um, I, I can imagine, what's that? Sounds terrifying. <laughs> well, it, I, I think it, it is, uh, it can be cathartic, um, 
but it's also like really um it's it's therapeutic i mean it's it does sound like a therapy session um it's very very therapeutic in that regard but it's also not autobiographical at the same time mm -hmm. like the part it's a fictional it's and it's a fictional county Okay. Um, I'm not using the real county, but I'm creating a fictional county that's based on the real county where we're from. And a lot, I had always wanted, when I was, when I was a kid, my grandmother used to tell me stories about the history of the county that we're from and the history of the state and the history, she was really into history. And I always wanted to I always assumed she made up most of the stories uh-huh. or the vast majority of it was there's might be some kernel of tr- real truth in it, but it was embellished and over the years of being stories of being told over the years. And as I got older and you read more books and you read, see more movies and you read more things, you begin to realize, Oh, there's very common, common things like the Yankee soldier. The, the Yankee soldier deserter in the in the Civil War, who tries to rob people or tries to like it's gone with the wind used it. Yeah, and that's one of the stories that my grandmother told me about the Yankee deserter, deserter, and who comes to the family home when the women are there by themselves and where it goes from there. And it's like, well, this is a very common trope, and I bet you can find this all over the Deep South family stories. Yeah. Very similar, where there, it may not have been our family. It might have been a story that was passed, and that it, over the years became our family. Okay, but I wanted to write about. I wanted to write this ghost story. It was what it was really about, and it's about a family legend where the father went off to the war and left his wife and his two younger sons at home. And the father and the two older sons went off to the war and the two, the father and this oldest son were killed in the war. And when the younger son finally was let out of, was a, he was a prisoner of war. Okay. And when he finally, after the war was over and they were finally paroled and finally allowed to come home, the house had been burned and everyone had disappeared without a trace. His mom, the two younger brothers, there was no sign of them anywhere. And they just disappeared. Nobody had, and no one ever knew whatever became of them. And I always thought that was an interesting story, and I wanted to write that story. Yeah. As a, you know. Yeah. And with the ruins of the house still being there, and, you know, a modern day kid come visit his family in the summertime anyway but I originally wrote it as a short story 30 some years ago and I always wanted to write it as a novel and I finally decided I think earlier this year or late last year that I had the idea of how to make it work and I started writing it and I had a great came up with a great title and I started writing it and I started realizing as I was writing it with everything that's going on in this country today and things that we're seeing all the time that I can't write a story that's about a civil war ghost story that's set in rural Alabama and not deal with race. You just can't. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of hard to do. 
and that would make the book fake yeah. and unreal and that's not what I wanted to do and so then I started looking into I guess it was last it was last fall it must have been last fall and I started reading novels about the civil rights era and nonfiction about the civil rights era and what went on in Alabama. And I remember it because I was a child when all of that was going on. When the March, I remember the March on Selma and I remember the freedom riders. And I remember when the kids in Mississippi disappeared. I I lived through that. Mm -hmm. I watched it on the news every night. And I realized that I can't not write. And so I started trying to figure out a way that I could write about it. And one of the things that was curious, and I did ask my parents about this the last time I saw them, was that all the years that we didn't live in Alabama, we'd moved to Chicago when I was a child, we would come back every summer to visit the family. That was our summer vacation every year. Yay, Alabama. (laughs) Yeah, as you can imagine, my sister and I were just thrilled (laughs) everyone else is going to Disneyland we get to go to Alabama and I realized that growing up spending the summers in Alabama at my grandmother's house and with my aunts and uncles and cousins I never saw any black people ever part of the country so I never saw them and they're there and I asked my parents it's like I mentioned that to my parents and then my dad started telling me stories that, you know, you don't think about, about how that where the black people were allowed to live in the county and where they were allowed to live in the towns and that hadn't changed. And when my parents were growing up, high schools, there was a high school, an entire school system for the black kids that maybe got one-tenth of the money, if they were lucky, that the schools for the white kids got. And the stuff I never knew. And I remember, and then I remember, my dad told me where they'll, it's terrible to say this, but they used to, it was a high school, it's an arc. It's an, it's an offensive racist term, but it was commonly used back then. But the high school was for the kids of, not the kids of color, but the mm-hmm. <laughs> adjective kids. Yeah. And, and it was, it was, and I, I don't like to even say that word, and it's not even the N word, but it's offensive, and I don't like to say it. But that's what I grew up hearing. You know, I, I am sure there are still parts of the South where, um, there are segregated schools and oh, there absolutely are you know. there's they um when alabama de- the, the county my family is from desegregated late they were one of the last to desegregate and the reason it took them so long to desegregate was because they were building the private elementary school and the private high school for the white kids wow a private, they build a fight. They build. They build a private school. They're called segregation academies. They're all over Alabama. Wow. I imagine they're in Mississippi and Georgia and other southern states too. And that was their answer to segregation. Desegregation was to open private schools for the white kids, and they were obviously more expensive. And they were with the rich 
and upper middle class white kids went. And so the kids that actually were desegregated were the working class and lower middle class white kids and the African American kids. And the the wealthier kids didn't have to go to school with the people of color. So you include all of this in your in your new book? Um, I'm probably going to. I've 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 when I write a first draft, I just don't really know what I'm doing. Okay. And so I just started writing it to see where it would go. Mm-hmm. And so I'm almost finished with it. And I know where all these, and, but I've been making notes as I go, oh, this is where this would go. This is where you would talk about the separate high school, the segregated high school. And this is where you will bring up the segregation academies and you'll bring up this stuff. And it's been quite, it's been quite interesting. My entire life has been, my entire adult life has been a re-education process. My 20s were the deprogramming everything I was raised (laughs) to believe. Mm -hmm. And then in my 30s, I started figuring things out for myself and figuring out my own morality and my own values and my own beliefs and now and it's still it's a constant re-education process i find myself frequently simply and i could excuse it with it's how i was raised Mm -hmm. but i don't believe that's an excuse no no because you know better not at our age at our age we know better yeah And, and you don't quit. And whenever someone says that, well, it's just how I was raised. I just want to say, so you ask your mom and dad's permission before you do anything. You consult with your parents before you make up any, any decisions, life decisions. You don't make any decisions on your own because it sounds to me like you let your parents think for you. So uh, has your family, um, changed their, their values, their views? Oh, gosh, no. <laughs> okay, okay. So how does that, like, what do they think about you then and, you know, your, you know, your your works of, you know, gay fiction and... Um, um, they pretend it doesn't exist. Okay. They pretend it doesn't exist. It's better, it's, it's easier for them that way. So are they but, of the don't ask, don't tell? It's... They don't want to hear it. No. Okay. Yeah. They don't want to hear it. And I've gone back and forth with this over the over the years, and it's it's really interesting. I mean, in, in a in a sociological way, mm-hmm. um, Southern people are all about family, and they're all about tradition. That's how you're raised. Your family is the most important thing. Mm-hmm. You always have your family. You always have family. You always have family. And I don't have that. And realizing that earlier on, early, very early on in my life, realizing that my parents' love was conditional okay. was very difficult to deal with. Yeah. But I eventually got a- away from it. Not so much, I mean, got away from that. When I say got away from it, I mean it's like it doesn't bother me anymore. It surprises people that it doesn't bother me anymore, but it doesn't. And I came to realize that 
could have chosen to be the per- the son that my parents wanted and dreamed of having mm-hmm. and be completely miserable for my entire life and just be a horrible, miserable, bitter, nasty person yeah. who hates his life and everything about it. Or I could be myself and be who I want to be and, and accept who I am and go on with my life. And once I did that, everything I ever wanted in life happened. I'm so happy for you, Greg. Really, that is that is amazing that you, you know, had the courage to do to to live your authentic life. Really. Well, I wasn't I wasn't raised that way, you know, and you know it's it's very very difficult. And my parents have just become oddly enough they've become more rigid (laughs) the older they get. Yeah, it happens. <laughs> you know, they're my parents. I mean, bottom line is, is they're still my parents. We still have a relationship. It's not, it's not a close one. Mm-hmm. But I know they care about me, and I know they don't want anything bad to ever happen to me, and they want me to be successful. They just wish that I was more the child they wanted. Yeah. And we're even because I wish they were the parents I wanted. <laughs> <laughs> So we all didn't get what we wanted. Yeah. None of us got what we wanted. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. So do you ever incorporate any of your story into your books? Is that is that fodder for writing? Um, I have some. Chance's background is very similar to mine. Okay. Not, not quite the same, but similar. Um, I'm writing a book. I have several. Right now I have, I have three books. Five books in progress. Right wow. Now. One, I have written a first draft. I've written five drafts of, and I could never quite get, to get, get it right. And I finally realized that the reason that I couldn't get it right was because I wasn't the real issue for the character I wasn't including because I didn't want to write yet another gay main character. And I realized that that's what's missing from the story, and that's why it's not working. And so I'm going to do one more draft, and I'm going to go back in and make him gay. And his his teenage experience in life is almost identical to the one that I had. Okay. So I'm, ba- I'm basing that. So that book is very, very, very um, personal and very therapeutic to write as well, in that was making me think about things with the relationship with my parents, seeing, trying to see things from their side of things. And, you know, hopefully it'll be, hopefully it'll be a really good book when it's finished. Oh, I'm sure it will be. Uh, Well, it's, um, it's a, it's a fun one. It's not a fun one. That's not, it's, it's another social issue one. And, I lived in Kansas. I went to high school in Kansas. I graduated from high school and started college in Kansas. And so it's kind of set in, so I set this book in Kansas where we lived in Kansas, fictionalized it, of course. I'm dealing with rape culture in a small town that's got a very successful football team. Oh, boy. High school football team. And I, I just felt like that's a really important story to tell because it, I was re, I was, Having been a football player and having been in that small Midwestern town environment, seeing things like Steubenville and St. Maryville 
mm-hmm. the cases that happened there was very real to me. And it's like, these are people I knew. Yeah. These characters, the people in these story, in these true news stories, these are people I knew. And I started thinking about it, and it's like, well, how would it have been if this sort of thing had happened when you were in high school? And, and it did when I was in high school. Of course it did when I was in high school. It just wasn't talked about. Or the girls got bad reputations, which is pretty much, you know, the way it is now. Yeah, and, yeah, that's not and changed. It, and I, I, I specifically remember there was one of the there was a cheerleader in a town in our county, and everyone knew that she um, and talked about it and talked about what a slut she was, how she'd had sex with five or six football players at a party. And looking at that from the perspective of 2016, 2017, when I started writing that book, it's like, how much, was she sober? Was she conscious? Did she, that was, was that, that couldn't have been her idea. You know, mm-hmm. this is one of those cases. Yeah. Only it was 40 years ago. Yeah. And there wasn't the internet and there wasn't 24 hour news. And it's just a little story in a little town in Kansas. And I always wonder what happened to her. Yeah. Yeah. And, but it, it, it happened back then. It just wasn't ever talked about. Yeah. I think we all have those stories from our past, you know. Um, and you're right. Um, it was long, long before the Me Too movement. And, uh, <laughs> You know, things weren't broadcasted. Um, no, you, you you would never tell anyone. No, no, not you, at all. You hope that no one knew, and if anyone did find out, it was always the girl's fault. Yeah, the girl was the bad person. Yeah. It was always the girl, and it's like, really, five five or six football players. She's five two and weighs a hundred and five pounds, and they're all football players. Really? Yeah, 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 yeah. She was on board for that. Yeah. And, you know, and you think about these things and you think about your experience in high school and you think about the girls who had bad reputations and you wonder now. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of shameful. Yeah. yeah. Um, so how was that for you as a football player? Like, well, were you friends with at, these guys or? Well, the, the weird thing and you, you learn these perspectives as you get older is when I was a kid, when I was growing up, I was I knew I was gay from the, I was attracted to boys. You know, as long as I can remember. I don't remember a time when I didn't know uh-huh. that I gravitated towards males rather than females romantically. Uh-huh. And that kept me apart from everyone else. Okay. I never felt like I had any friends because I wasn't, nobody knew me. They only knew who I was pretending to be. Right, right. So weren't, we weren't really friends yeah. because they didn't know me at all. Yep. And so I, I always was kind of alone and I always felt very not, like I didn't go to parties. I wasn't invited to parties. I wasn't invited to go out and do things and hang out with the guys and the other players and stuff. I, that never, I wasn't that kid. And so it was really shocking to me many, many, many years later thinking, you know, that I didn't have any friends and that I wasn't very well liked or anything like that. 
right? To find out that I was actually quite popular in high school. And it was shocking. It was absolutely shocking to have to have a conversation with somebody I went to high school with that I hadn't seen in 30 or 40 years and come to, to realize that, oh, everyone loved you. You were really popular. Everyone talked about you and thought well of you and thought you were really great. We just thought you were really, you know, you didn't do, you didn't go out, you didn't do anything. We just all thought you were just like really dedicated to studying and reading and being, you know, a good student. And it's like, no, that's not what it was. I was at home by myself because no one invited me anywhere. <laughs> that's it's, how I remember it. Yeah. But, you know, and so. It's so it's, wild to, to think about your perception as a teenager, right? And then to look back on that as an adult um, and even to hear these other, uh, you know, it, it's views a, it's of yourself. Yeah. It's amazing. And the same thing with college. I felt the same way with college, with my fraternity. I even was in a fraternity. Wow. That's, that shit went on in the fraternity house. That I know. Oh, yeah. That, that went on in the fraternity house. Not me. Yeah. But I was complicit because I didn't call the guys out for it. I tried to protect the girls as much as I could. Mm-hmm. Like I would, if I saw a girl who was obviously wasted and was obviously being preyed upon by one of the bro- one or two of the brothers, I would try to rescue her. Yeah. Yeah. And now, now we teach young women how to watch out for those things and to watch out for, you know, if one of their friends is being preyed upon. Um, right. And that's something we didn't even talk about back in the day. Yeah, we didn't talk about it back then. And it was funny because one of the things that was really interesting to me, again, in retrospective, is in the fraternity, I was in charge of, we had little sisters, girls who, uh-huh. you know, and I was in, I was elected to be in charge of them. I ran that program for a year and I was like, Mr. I took the, t- they, they called whoever was in charge of the little sisters. We had, they were called daughters, not little sisters. But I was, the nickname of the coordinator was the daughter daddy. And I took that very seriously. I treated them like they were my daughters. Oh, that's so awesome. And and what frat were you in? Uh, I was in Theta Chi. Okay. And I wasn't always very successful with that. And I, not as much as I should have. And I remember now thinking back how weird it was that every semester we would get a bunch of new girls who would join the program. And then after that one semester, they would never come back. Oh, Gee, wonder why. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now I know I, I feel pretty confident. I know why they never came back wow. now, but I, you know, back then it's horrible. It's not an excuse, but it was how things were yeah. as awful as that is. If that's, it was expected, and it's terrible. It's so, terrible. I got to tell you, I was a Teak sister, ah. and and we actually formed uh, Teak sisters. Uh, I went to the University of Dayton because we didn't want to participate in the sorority system, and um, it was. I had a very different experience. Like we were. We just partied with the brothers. Like, they were like our brothers, you know? Um, I mean, we had, it was really strange because we did have some girls who were like that. And those are the ones who stuck around. Yeah. 
they were just one of the guys. Yeah, they could exactly. Pound, they could pound beers just like all the guys could. They could smoke just as much weed as any guy could. They Hell could go, yeah. You know, our, our house won the uh, most keg award. We always did that, too. <laughs> <laughs> we had a party at Christmas at the end of this fall semester that was called the 12 kegs of Christmas. That was just <laughs> 12 kegs. <laughs> and yeah, it was a big, huge blowout party. And we were known for our parties. We were the party house. Yes. And everyone came to our parties. They would always wind up at our parties. Yeah. And, and it's just it was just a zoo. Yep. It was just a zoo. Yep. Yep. I could never go back there and do that all over again. Never. Uh, I just think, how did I live through it? Oh, my God. I am so lucky to be alive. <laughs> I remember things that I did or how much I drank. I can remember sitting around playing. One night we were playing quarters. Did you guys play quarters? Oh, yes. We were playing quarters with tequila. Oh, yeah. Shots of tequila. Yes. Like, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. I, I remember I spent one entire day trying to acquire a taste for scotch. Oh, um, I went yeah. through like a whole fifth of it. Uh, yeah, it was nasty. I drank. I drank rumplements. We were at <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> rumplements! I drank. I got wasted on rumplements Heck one yeah. night, and they loaded me into someone's car, and I put the window down because I had to throw up while we were driving. I threw <laughs> up out the window, oh and I puke splattered all over the side of his car and it ate the paint <laughs> uh, i believe it i believe it oh my goodness rumplements that brings back bad memories <laughs> yes yes <laughs> and i'm sure memories i don't even remember <laughs> yeah, i'm sure i don't remember most of that night <laughs> yeah oh man so oh. do you do you incorporate any of of your life experiences like that into your writing well, sometimes I do. I mean, it's really funny because I get, whenever I get asked that, my automatic reaction is like, oh, my life isn't that interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to write about my life because it's not that interesting. But then I start telling stories and thinking about things that I've done and experiences I've had. It's like, yeah, it's been pretty interesting, actually. You have a rich history. I do. And I always tell beginning writers to re always remember that life is Life is just material. Yeah. But, yeah, I've written about, I wrote, <laughs> this is really funny, um, under my gay erotica pseudonym, I wrote a, three books about fraternities. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> and it's really, really funny because I thought about it and it's like, because, you know, I don't, I, I know you were, when, when you've gone through the whole Greek experience, when you've gone through the whole ridiculous hell week and initiation night and all that nonsense, mm -hmm. you know, you're sworn to secrecy for life. You know, these mm -hmm. are secret rituals that you're not allowed to talk about and things, all these things that we do in the house. It's just us, you know, mm -hmm. and all the other Theta Chi's all over the entire world have been, had the exact same experiences and did the exact same things. And when I was, started writing my public my editor at kensington asked me to write the first one it was his idea for me to write this book and i thought i can't really write about a fraternity and make up that stuff 
you know? If I'm going to write about a fraternity, even though it's a porn novel, really, I kind of <laughs> want it to be accurate. Yeah. And then I laughed, and it's like, well, I'm writing a gay porn novel about a fraternity. None of my fraternity brothers are ever going to read this. Well, you never know. <laughs> so, and then and then what, what are they going to do? Drum me out of the alumni? Yeah, right. Exactly. Punish me some more. I'm almost 60. I could give a shit. <laughs> Shouldn't have invited me. Shouldn't have given me a bid. That was your first mistake. So, but, Greg, what, what keeps you writing, and how do you come up with all of these ideas? Oh, God, I have no idea. Um, everything is ideas for me. Oh, I love to write. I write all the time. I'm always writing. I'm always coming up with new ideas. I have journals full of ideas and notes and like I'll hear it I'll hear something like okay, case in point. Um the Alabama book. Mm-hmm. So I when I wrote the short story I was it was called Ruins. And that's been used, obviously. That title's been used mm-hmm. a few times. And one of the reasons why I'm really weird in that I can't write anything unless I know what it's called. Okay. If it doesn't have a title, I can't write it. Okay. It's just very disjointed. That's part of the process for me. It starts with the title. And one of the reasons I couldn't write, I did never wrote the book was because I knew I didn't like, that title wasn't good. And I knew it had been used too many times and I was going to have to come up with something else. And then one day I was in my car listening to my iPod phone plugged through the iTunes plugged through my car stereo and I was listening to a song called um, If I Die Young by the band Perry which is a really which is one of my favorite songs it's really beautiful but sad I like sad songs (laughs) I'm not familiar with that it's um, anyway the, 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 the chorus of the song is if I die young bury me in satin lay me down in a bed of roses oh yeah okay yeah. be in the river at dawn let me float away to the words of a love song yes okay and I was like bury me in satin that's a really that's an interesting I like that phrase and I was like oh that would kind of work with the, the ghost story book and then no bury me in satin doesn't quite get the feel right and then and then, this is me driving to work <laughs> I thought well it needs to be Satin is the word that doesn't work. It needs to be a two-syllable word, and it needs to start with an S because that's part of the, the music of the words. And it's like, shadows, bury me in shadows, and that's the title of the book. Wow. And then I started writing it. <laughs> that's great. So have you always, like, gone through this? Have you always had to have a title? Like, Always. And, always. And that's your process, and you write drafts? and come back and plug in um, things that you pick up well, along the way? or Well, it's not, the process is, I don't really have a set process. Every book is different. Okay. The chance books are, chance, <laughs> it's, 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 I'm so neurotic. It's, 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 <laughs> your your listeners are going to become completely insane. But chance is a very regimented character. Okay. Very, very by the book, by the rules. You do this, you do this, you do this. He's very orderly, very anal retentive, for want of a better 
better phrase term. So when I write those books, I write them in a very anal retentive way. Okay. I, I get the title. I figure out the plot. I outline the entire thing. Then I write a draft, and then I just keep writing drafts and drafts and drafts until I get it right. When I write a Scotty book, Scotty's a free spirit, and Scotty is a devil may care, takes life as it comes, is ready for everything kind of person. And his his motto is, life doesn't give you anything you can't handle, it's how you handle it that matters. And when I write those books, I have no idea. I have no idea what the story is. I have a vague idea of what the who's going to die and what the setup for the murder is. But I have no idea who the killer is. I have no idea how any of it's going to turn out until I start writing it. And, it. and I literally write it that way. I have no idea what the next chapter is going to be. Would it be safe to say that you take on like the personality of your main characters? I kind of try to. Yeah. I kind of try to. That's one of the reasons why I think that I ended. I wanted to end the Chance series was because he is, his mind is such a dark place. I don't like going there. Okay. And there was one book in the series, particularly one of the early ones, where he went through some really deep, horrible personal trauma. Mm-hmm. And when I would write that book, I was my. At that point in time, the best day, my big writing day of the week was Sundays. So I would get up at 7 o'clock in the morning on Sunday, and I would just write for like nine hours. Wow. And then about four or five, three or four o'clock, I would finish, and I was working on this really dark chance book. And I would finish, and like, I need to drink. I need a drink, and I need to be around people. <laughs> I need to get out of this mindset. Yeah. Then I would just go to the quarter and get wasted. <laughs> and I literally was like, well, this is probably why writers drink. Yeah. <laughs> to clear their minds, to pull themselves out of where they're at when they're writing. And fortunately, I don't quite get to that point anymore. That's good. But, um, it's, it's very like the, like Bury Me in Shadows I knew how I know how it ends. I knew how I knew certain plot points. I knew certain things that had to be there. But I discovered the story as I discovered the character as I was writing the first draft. And now I know who the character is. Now I know what need, and I, and now I know what needs to be in the book. And so now the next draft is going to clean up all the mess. I try to be. I try to be more. I try to write efficiently, mm-hmm. and I try to use my the time that I have for writing is very limited now that I went back to work full time. Yay, health insurance! It's <laughs> a good thing. But um, so I try to be very prepared when I sit down to write, so that I'm not sitting staring at the screen, not having any idea of what to do, and usually. If I have an idea of a paragraph or something that I'm going to write when I sit down to do it, once I start writing the paragraph, my mind opens and I just go. Okay, that's great. And I'm always terrified that that's going to not happen one day. Yeah, yeah. But I have, I have file cabinets and notebooks and things full of ideas and 
character names and characters that I've in titles for stories and things that I've come up with. I'm always got, and I'm always coming up with more. I started writing two short stories in my lunch break today wow. because I had two ideas. I promised a short story to this anthology. A writer I know opened a bar. And some of his writer friends decided that it would be really fun to do a ebook of stories set in the bar. Mm-hmm. Sounds good. And I got asked to write one. And I said, sure, because I always say yes. I never say no, <laughs> which is problem. Uh-huh. Another problem. And I had literally no idea how to write this story. And then I, the guy who owns the bar he's a southern noir writer named eric cruitt and i met him because he was an anthony award finalist last year and i moderated the panel for the category at Khan, which is the big mystery convention i moderated the panel for the finalists in that category oh, so i had to read all of their books and he writes about poor white working class um criminals basically and you know i can relate to that because these are relatives of mine (laughs) and he's a great guy and so but you know he's also there's that i don't know you're not from the south are you no i'm not there's this weird southern masculine thing where you show up southern men show affection by giving each other shit and making fun of each other okay it's not really good for you if you're a sensitive child. <laughs> we, we Irish do that too. And so, and you just fall into that rhythm. It's so weird because I don't really consider myself to be Southern. Even though I'm from the South and I live in New Orleans, New Orleans is different. But when I get around Southern men, I fall into that right away. And I was thinking this after this morning, I've got to write that story. It's due by the end of the month and I don't know what to do. And I'd had a conversation with somebody on Twitter. (laughs) See, this is how my process works. Uh (laughs) Somebody on Twitter was talking about strippers and their money being damp because, you know, it's, they yeah. sweat and, and it's stuffed into their underwear and uh-huh. stuff. And I, I get that. And I responded to the tweet and said, "You know, when I was with, when I was in college, I worked at a bank that was near a bunch of strip clubs, and we always took the moist money." <laughs> and somebody said, "Else responds that you really need to write a story called Moist Money." Oh, that's great. And then today, it just hit dawned on me. It's like, you know what? If there's, what if the bar is rented out one night for a bachelorette party? And it's written from the perspective of a gay guy who's hired to be a stripper for the bachelorette party. And then as the course of the story evolves, you find out that the woman who's the woman who's the bachelorette is marrying somebody that he had sex with in high school who then turned on him and bullied him. And so he's going to use the bachelorette party to get even with them both. Oh, my (laughs) And I thought that's a really good idea. So I started wow. Okay. And the other day I was moving books around and I have this book about um evangelical backwoods apple hillbilly redneck snake handling churches. Okay. 
and I opened the book, I was moving it, and I just picked it up, and I opened it up, and on the front page, they're talking about spirit trees, and I'm sure you don't know what a spirit tree is, and, they, and I, but I knew what a spirit tree was, and I was, it was weird reading about it. Back in the hollers, superstitious people used to put, have a tree in their front yard that they would put glass bottles on the branches because when the wind moved, the bottles would clink together and that would scare off evil spirits. Oh. And so after I worked on that other story for a little while, I, the spirit tree idea was in my head. I said, like, you should write a story called the spirit tree from the perspective of a um, state investigator who's called to a crime scene in a very, very, very rural part of Alabama where they have a spirit tree in the front yard. I call it the story of the spirit tree. So I started writing that story. Oh, that's great. Job. That is great. So it's, what what can we expect from you soon? Do you have anything that's like um, ready to, to come out? The next Scotty book comes out next month. Oh, that's awesome. It's a Christmas book. It's called Royal Street Revion, which I will spell because no one will know how to spell it. Okay. It's a French word. It's R-E-V-E-I-L-L-O-N, Revion. And what a Revion, it, Revion is, it's a dinner during the Christmas season where you go, you fast before you go to Mass. Okay. And after after midnight mass on Christmas Eve, you come home and have a feast, and that's a Revion dinner. And it's Royal Street Revion. Yeah. Okay. And so all the Scotty titles are alliterative, alliterative, which, and so restaurants now it it's not just restricted to Christmas Eve anymore, but that's the tradition, and now restaurants have Revion dinners, and they serve the traditional meal late in the evening, like at 9 or 10 o'clock at night during Christmas season in the quarter. Oh, that's cool. And it's, it's you know, it's an old French French custom. It's an old French feast, so it's all that wonderful French food. Yeah, yeah <laughs> but, nice. Butter and cream. Mm -hmm. Can't get enough of that. <laughs> yeah, it's all wonderful. Right. Well, so thank that'll you. be coming out, and that comes out next month, I think September 12th, I think, is the actual release date. But okay. if you pre-order from the Bold Strokes website, it'll be delivered on on the 1st of September. Awesome. And I... Is that where people would be able to reach you um, on the Bold Strokes? Go to the Bold Strokes website? Um, actually, the easiest way... I don't have my own website. Okay. I'm... I'm such a professional. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's easiest for people to find me on either Facebook, where I have an author page under Greg Heron, and I also have my own personal page. People just, I accept all friend requests, unless you're an obvious online prostitute or something. And those are usually pretty obvious right away. My new picture is at, and... Um, on Twitter, it's Scotty Nola, S-C-O-T-T-Y-N-O-L-A, at Scotty Nola. Okay. And that's that's easy. I also have a blog at WordPress. It's gregwrites.wordpress.com, Greg I think is what it is. I don't have my browser open. So always the professional. That's me. <laughs> hey, we'll find you. Okay, great. All right. <laughs> I'll, I'll count on that. 
Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much, Greg, for being with us today. Um, it's been just fantastic talking to you. Um, I, we look we look forward to the next Scotty book coming out on September 12th, which is Royal Street Revion. Did I get that right? You absolutely did. Bravo. Awesome. All right. <laughs> so that is all the time we have for today. And thank you for being with us and joining Liz Talk About Books, baby. So until next time, may your journey be lighthearted and peace be plenty.